Okay, let's get started here. As it is now 9 o'clock, I'm going to use every second I can take. There will be no hour for me today. It's not possible, so we're going to use it all up. As they shut those doors, let's settle in for our first hour, studying the Word of God and worshiping this almighty God that we should look at and, and conduct ourselves in reverence. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we love you. Praise your name. You are mighty, and you are awesome, and you are worthy of our praise. We should be in awe of you. And as I went through this this week and prepared this lesson, you know what you convicted me with, that there are so many things, so many instances in life where I only consider myself. I don't consider you. I don't consider what it is you want. I consider what I want, and I'm sure I'm not the only one in this building, that even though we are saved and we are justified, that in spite of our sin, you saved us and you loved us because of your great mercy and your great love, we tend to forget. We tend to forget our first love and we tend to forget just how awesome and amazing and holy you are. I pray that we're reminded of that from your word today and your word will always remind us of that and that we can then use that um, And you will use that, and we'll listen to that conviction to adjust the way we conduct life. We love you. Be with us as we study your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 as we continue this study. Pastor Kevin is, is doing well, and he'll be back next week. But today it's me again. So you have me, and uh, no complaints, nobody running out. I've told them to lock the doors, so you guys are stuck. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 1 through 7. I'm going to read this first, and then break this down, and kind of tell you the approach that I've got with this particular passage, and what I believe the Lord has has led me to in this, and, and the focus. But I think it's good to just read it out straight through. Pastor asked, do as much of chapter 5 as you can. Maybe you can get through the whole thing. I think he was joking, but that didn't happen. We're going to get through seven verses, and even that is a stretch. But I think they go together, so I think it, it will be fluid, and um, you'll see how they uh, are reinforced throughout Scripture. It, it's so clear how this is something that is important to God, and you'll see that today. It should be important to us. So chapter 5, verse 1 is where you should be. Here's what God tells us through Solomon, through the, the preacher. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger uh, that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase, when words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. A lot there, a lot of things to look at here. So here's how I'm breaking this down today. 
We're going to break it down, verse 1, then verses 2 and 3, verses 4 through 6, and then verse 7. And my general theme that I just picked up from this is reverence to the Almighty God. How we approach, and especially on a day like today, a day we've designated, what we call the Lord's Day. And, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Maybe you have. Maybe I've discussed it or mentioned it. Why we worship on Sunday traditionally. It's not man, mandated in Scripture. It's a reminder for us because this is the day in which our Lord resurrected. The fact that you're here and saved would not have happened, could not have happened if he hadn't defeated death. And, and so we are reminded continually when we approach God's house, a, a time, and this could be in a shack. It's not a beautiful building like this that, that we're talking about. But when we approach worship collectively as believers, we're to be reminded about why we can even do this, how, how it's even afforded to us. And on a Sunday, we're reminded of the resurrection, uh, something that could never be done without Christ. So it's reverence. So here's, here it is, approaching God with reverence. That's verse 1 praying with reverence, vowing with reverence, or maybe don't do it at all, and then fearing the Lord with reverence. And so as we look at this and we look at approaching God with reverence, verse 1 says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you go to worship, let's think of it that way. Specifically, of course, what Solomon would be referencing is the temple. That's not what we're dealing with here. We know that we, the true worshipers worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But we collectively come to the house of God here together as we worship, draw near to listen, to listen, not to me, by the way, not to Pastor James, listen to the word of God. That's what we're talking about here. Is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, to put on a show, to do something to check a box, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Somebody who does that does not know that they are doing evil. I thought it would be a good idea to define this word that I'm using here, reverence. And by the way, this is going to be, I'm going to tap into Hebrews chapter 12 here in just a moment, where this word is used in the Greek. And a derivative of this is used throughout Scripture of how we approach God or who God is. So if we look at this particular definition uh, and how it's used in the, Greek, in, the, in the Greek language. Here's what it means. Reverently, godly fear. So properly, a taking hold of what God calls good. And by the way, his word is good. What he instructs us to do in his word is good. God is good. Living a holy life is good, as we'll see reinforced through the scriptures today. But what God calls good, his instructions, his gospel is good. Holy caution, though, is also included in this. Inducing circumspective behavior. Very interesting. Here's the other godly respect to define that. It's illustrated by a person, listen to this, this is cool. Carrying a priceless Persian vase across the room, which will always be in a devout, respectful fashion. I don't want to break it. It's so precious. My relationship with Christ is so precious. As we think about Jesus uh, talking about the gospel and being saved at this this treasure, a priceless treasure. That's what it is. Here's one more I didn't put up on the screen, but here's what it is. And I thought this was a good definition of reverence from a, a biblical perspective. Listen to this one. Profound respect mingled with love and awe. Want me to repeat that one? Probably. Profound respect mingled with love and awe. I like that one the best. I should have put it up there, but 
I didn't. It's an incredible way to think about this. The idea of awe and respect due to his love for us first and our love back to him. And it's an incredible thing to think about. And the opposite is unfortunately often true amongst believers. And you say, what do you mean? Uh, These are going to be shocking, but maybe not. In the Christian world, we unfortunately have what's often called Christianese, or we, we will say things flippantly or use the name of Christ flippantly or the name of God flippantly, but also just holding on to things that are um, not well thought of, not well thought out. Here's some examples. Examples of not approaching God with reverence. And I just picked out several. T-shirts, bumper stickers, buttons, things like this. Jesus or God is my co-pilot. A little piece of advice. If he's your co-pilot, you need to switch seats. Just off the top of my head here. This one you might not be able to see. This one really hurt me when I looked at it. This is a a Christian man and other Christian men who are homosexual. And their organization is called Wonderfully Made. Now what you can't see on this logo or symbol, and this is something that they put together. This is the cross, of course, draped in the LBGTQ um, rainbow. But on this sign, which of course we know this is King of the Jews, right? It says LBGTQ. Yeah. So that is not approaching the Word of God and our Savior or the cross with reverence. That's an extreme. But you see these things that are kind of promoted to children, Jesus is my homeboy, that says. That was in a VBS stuff. He's not your homeboy. He's your Savior. He's your King. He's your God. This one you've seen, I see these bump, these little stickers all over the place where it's kind of just jokingly say, where Jesus is peeking out and saying, I saw that. I saw that. I saw that. I heard you. You know, as if Jesus is just this you know, judge analyzing everything we do and making a joke of who he is. Now, unfortunately, you guys know my, my uh, abilities with texting, and I've never texted, so that, th- these are all texts, I guess, you know, laugh out loud, that kind of stuff. I, I don't know, just kidding, I'm guessing the JK is, right? I, I don't know if that's bring your own beer. What's BRB? I don't know. You guys figure... We don't reduce Jesus to these kinds of things. He's not texting. He gives you the full explanation. You get the idea. This is in a children's song. This drove me nuts. I I banned this at our school, and I didn't have that authority, but I made it. But it's a song directed to kids. Jesus is my superhero. He's better than Superman. He's better than Spider-Man. He's better than this. And they put Jesus, this is supposed to be Jesus, flying with a Superman cape as if we could reduce him to that. That's not reverent. Um, then God showed up. You might have even said that. God's always here. He doesn't show up. Uh, I, there's, there's another one that I didn't put up here. It's a God thing. When things are good, people say it's a God thing. No, it's a God thing when you're in prison with Silas and you've been beaten and you're chained to the ground and you're singing praises. That's a God thing too. But we flippantly do that Jesus was a socialist, and, you know, we need to be careful about this. He's not a Republican either, by the way, although we oftentimes think about this. Look at how we've reduced Christianity to being equal with being an American. I'm not just an American, but I'm also a Christian. That's 
That's not looking at Christ in awe. Now, that, these are examples of this, but it's, it's more than that. We can do this in other ways. Um, you've heard people say, let go and let God. You've heard that kind of thing, and maybe there's some good sentiment to that, the idea that, that we should just let him do it all. Well, God gives us a lot of instructions. We trust him, but we trust him by obeying him. And oftentimes that sentiment leaves that out. The idea of, of doing this, this is a God thing, the co-pilot idea. Um, we don't want to use God's name flippantly. I've heard Christians use the name of God almost in conversation. Without praise, without honor, without asking him for something, without quoting scripture, I think we need to be careful about taking the Lord's name in vain. There are songs that we sing. There's some modern Christian songs where um, the song, the sentiment of the song is, I still trust you. You're still good, even though, and the, in the song, they just list out all these troubles. It's almost like a, you know, the old, old school country western song where I've lost my, my wife, my dog, my trailer, and all of that, and yet it all comes back around. No, God is good all the time. And blessing from God is sometimes persecution and hardship and trial. And so the idea that, well, I still do? What do you mean you still do? He's still God because he's always been God. I think there are other things that we can be careful about that is irreverent. Have you ever, and I have, I have, I've I've been a Bible teacher for many years, where you say a phrase like, ask Jesus into your heart. You realize that's not in the book that's in front of you anywhere. Salvation is not complicated in Scripture. Repent and believe. Believe on the name of Jesus, on exactly who he is. And as we studied in John 12, that is a command from the Almighty. It is a divine subpoena. And when you def- defy that, when, when, you, when the, the Lord is working in your heart and he is convicting you with the gospel, it isn't a matter of asking him in. He is pounding at you. And he is coming at you, and your response is repent and believe. That's all you see in Scripture. So we have ways in which we can be irreverent. I spent a lot more time on that than I wanted to. But you see examples that we see that maybe well-meaning Christians, it's very irreverent how they approach. Here's what Jerry Bridges says, a great quote. We cannot separate trust in God from the fear of God. We will trust him only to the extent that we genuinely stand in awe of him. Remember that definition I gave you. Profound respect mingled with love and awe. That is the way we look at this. And when we begin to get arrogant with our approach to Christ, Spurgeon has a great quote. You've probably heard it. I've used it. He says, while other Christians are congratulating themselves for their salvation, I have to lie humbly at the foot of Christ's cross and marvel that I'm saved at all. That's awe mingled with love awe and respect for the almighty God. You see my setup here, right? Who, how do we approach this place and this day and what we're doing in this moment? And it isn't just Sunday, by the way. It's every day you open up this word and you should be doing it every day. Do you stand in awe of it? Are you in reverent fear of who he is? So I mentioned that this word, I, 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 I pulled it from Hebrews chapter 12. The setting of Hebrews 12, as you know, Many of you know, we've, I've used it. It's one of my favorite passages as we go into this, that Jesus is the, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So it goes back to who he is. That's the beginning of chapter 12, that salvation belongs to him. The fact that you're saved is because of him. That the fact that you're being transformed into the likeness of son is because of him. 
And each bit of this is you walking in his grace because he is gifting this to you. You understand how that works. But he begins to use a comparison in verse 25. I'm picking this up at verse 26 of how Israel, when they saw God's mighty power through the wilderness and as he was leading them to the promised land, and they still wouldn't believe, he then brings this right to our face. And he says this, I'll pick it up at verse 26, it's up on the screen. At that time, his voice shook the earth, the example of the Israelites. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. This is hearkening to this, this moment in time this, where he makes a new heaven, a new earth, when Christ reestablishes things and, and resets things. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And the idea of this, if you were in chapter 12, you would see often in your Bibles this idea of a kingdom that is not shakable or not shaken. That is the kingdom that is coming. The kingdom you're part of if you're in Christ. So he says this, verse 28, this is the perspective we should have. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That same word we just defined, with reverence and awe. Consider the God who did all this, who made you what you are, who saved you from what you were, who gives you this kingdom that's not shaken. And then how does he end it? How how does the author of Hebrews end it? How does the Holy Spirit end it? Our God is a consuming fire. He's not your homeboy. He's not your co-pilot. He's not this little meme that peeks out and says, I'm watching you. He's the almighty God. And he saved you from your sins. He's a consuming fire. This, by the way, that was taken, this chapter 5 and and how the author Solomon writes this, is generally we see this this idea, the sentiment, Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 11, certainly he knew the word. Now therefore, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, this is who we serve, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Certainly this is to the Israelites, but think about this for you. Your God is a promise keeper, and he's promised to save you. The hope that we have, the hope that I have, as believers is a guaranteed lock. There is now no condemnation. Last week we heard an incredible message of what God's love looks like in one verse, by the way, that he loved them to the end, to the perfect, is really what we're looking at. Perfectly he loved them. That's an, and, and, and you know what an encouragement that was. I'm, I'm sure that you were as well. But his steadfast love is a guarantee. Yours isn't, mine isn't. Uh, you know, we, we, we fall in this, but we have a God who keeps his commandments. But look at the second part of this, verse 10. He repays to their face. Boy, that's strong language, isn't it? Those who hate him by destroying them, he will not be slack with the one who hates him. And by the way, it's one or the other. There's no middle ground with Jesus. You know, we, uh, James reminded us yesterday, there's people who are watching here that we don't even realize in the modern day of virtual church. Um, to you out there, you're one or the other. You're either in Christ or you're not. You're either his enemy or you're his child. You're one or the other. And you think, I don't hate him. If you reject his gospel, you do. You do hate him. You may not realize it. It means you love yourself, you love this world, you love the culture more than him. Anyway, back to the text. He doubles down. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. God doesn't mix words and he's not afraid of men to your face you shall therefore be careful to do 
the, the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Important stuff. So approach God with reverence, Exodus 3, 5. Then he said, do not come near. This is to, to Moses. You know this text. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. As he approaches this burning bush, knowing God is present, as we open up God's word and we have the complete revelation, we approach it that way as we collectively come here. And you should have come here today for the purpose of glorifying the Lord. Not what can I get? What can I do? What can I, how can I serve? How can I become more like Christ? It's not what can he do for me? That should be the opposite. What is Isaiah's reaction when he sees the glory of the Lord? He's in the presence of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6, you know his reaction. Woe is me, I am lost. I'm ruined. That's his reaction. He's in awe of reverent fear of who our God is. This is approaching the Lord with reverence. He said, well, I'm not in the presence of the Lord. Do you realize, Christian, that if you're in Christ, God's in you. His word is living and active. This will never go away. You're in his presence. We're here, and I don't mean this place, remember. You're here worshiping the almighty God. And he understood who he was. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And let's just consider, what does God delight in? Psalm 51. I'll be in Psalm 50 this morning in our Bible reading in church. And again, praising the almighty God and what he's done. That particular passage, a little preview of it, is probably associated with the Feast of Booth and reminding ourselves of what God has done. We think of that, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and of course, not being Jewish, we don't have that same connection. But to me, it's always been, you know, the fact that God preserved them, saved them, and, and gave them, and, and was tabernacling with them. That is what we know better than any in this modern age of, uh, of, of post-resurrection, that God is going to tabernacle with us. We're looking forward to the moment where he comes back and is amongst us, but he's with you now in Christ. Anyway, back to the text. Isaiah chapter 6, I said, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm ruined. Per the right perspective on who the king is, who the Lord is, there's no homeboy here, there's no co-pilot here, there's God Almighty, and he was in his presence, and he knew it. So we think about that. What does God delight in? Here's what he delights in. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He is looking for what you are on the inside. Not what you bring fake on the outside. He's looking for what you are looking at, how he looks at you, and only he can look at you this way, what's going on in your heart. You can see how convicting this was for me this week. Imagine if you were preparing this, and hey, you got to stand in front of other people and say these things. Now, he's convicting me when I look at this. How do I approach his word? How do I approach teaching you? Is it, is it for show or is it with this sort of broken spirit, a broken, broken and contrite heart like we saw it of Isaiah just a second ago? I went back, but it's not going back. I'll keep it. Proverbs 15, 8, Solomon says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright, the righteous, by the way, you're righteous because of his righteousness. You're righteous if you're in Christ. He made you righteous. That's acceptable to him. And then we see this example, and I'm not, it's not working here. Maybe you guys have to advance for me. I'll shut it off and on. The example from 1 Samuel 15, 20. There we go. You know this one. And this is Saul thinking he's done something great, right? He did this great thing because, you know, he did obey. He, he did destroy the enemy. He did exactly what he should do, but he, he didn't obey the Lord. He did what he thought, his version of it. And here's what Samuel said to 
to, to Saul. I have, Saul said, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, or Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel's response is God's response. Is the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And by the way, this again harkens back to the last thing I preached on in, in John 12. Obeying God is the way of salvation. Now, oftentimes people think, well, that means obeying his rules. No, no. Obeying the command of the gospel. Obeying who Christ is and what he claims salvation is, which is belief in him and him alone. That there is no other gods before him, but he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. That's obeying here in this context. Certainly obeying the precepts given in his, in his word doesn't save you. It is a reflection of the obedience to the gospel. That's John 12, 48, as you remember. But behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Now remember, back to our text in Ecclesiastes 5, it says to listen. It talks about going to the house of God to draw near to listen. Do you remember that? Verse 1, to listen to what, what God has to say. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1 with me real quick. Isaiah 1. And we've got to go real quick. Isaiah 1. Isaiah chapter 1. And I'm not going to try to pontificate much about this. I want to, you, you just hear it. Because the connections are so strong. I probably will pontificate a little, but I'm going to try not to. Isaiah chapter 1, 10 through 20. I, I intend to just have you see it and read it. Isaiah speaking on behalf of God as a prophet of the Almighty. Here's what he says. Speaking for God. Hear the word of the Lord. That's how he starts verse 10. You rulers of Sodom. He's not talking about Sodom specifically. He's talking about those who are outside of God's will. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's connecting anybody who is not doing what God calls him, rejecting the truth of the word to Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Now keep in mind, he demanded, he commanded them to do this, but with the right heart. Okay? I hate them. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before me. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Boy, you see that, we oftentimes take that 
that passage of verse 18, and we'll pull it out of there. And we should, in part, talking about our sin and the fact that he has made it white as snow and the righteous acts that we have that we think we're impressing him with are nothing, that salvation belongs to the God by, by God, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone on his finished work on the cross alone. So we oftentimes do. But notice, he is putting this in connection with our worship, how we approach him and we come in here and see if we can just sing a little bit better or we can act, it looks like we're we got the right attitude or we put on a show for somebody he is not impressed you can't impress him first of all that's not possible but we think we can or we can impress the people around us he hates this and that's the context here that's what we see Isaiah saying this is from the Lord so that's number 1 number 2 is pray with reverence i'm going to spend very little time on this and the reason for that is I've got a whole other message I've got in my back pocket. I've told you some of you on prayer, and we'll spend more time on that later when I have that chance to do that down the road, and I probably will. And here's what Ecclesiastes 5, 2 through 3 says, and it's up on the screen, but you got it in front of you. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. It's a good reminder. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and by the way, that might say much effort or much activity, depending on your translation, and a fool's voice with many words. Now, I want to jump right into the passage that I think you're thinking of as well, and that's Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, and I'll bring them up on the screen. When we think of this, Jesus is telling us the context of this passage, and he's most certainly got the hypocritical pharisees right there with him when he is speaking this way but he's he's making a connection to worship and service okay so before we get to verse five he's leading into verse five about prayer about how you do work or give and you do it so other people can see okay so that's kind of the idea beware of practicing your righteousness before men that's the idea as we get into verse five specifically in verse five though It says, so you need to be conducting your giving to the needy in secret. In verse 5, then, he transitions into prayer. So he makes that, it's that same heart issue. Why are you worshiping? How are you worshiping this almighty God? Verse 5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. It's interesting by this hypocrite word. Again, we're running out of time already, but I got to tell you, this word in the Greek was used to, uh, for actors in the Greek theater. Just think about that. And, and they were good. Like they could put on a good show. And they were professional actors to make you think they were something they weren't. So that's important to know that. Okay, just think of that when we write through this. He, he's ter- certainly talking about Pharisees here, but they knew what that word meant. So you need to know what it means too. A hypocrite, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And we pray out loud, and there's nothing wrong with that, and we should. Uh, most of us do that, and we have opportunities to do that. We've got to be careful on how we do that. Why are, are, you, are you talking to your Lord when you're doing that? You happen to be in front of other people, but is it just one-on-one with the chosen one? Or, or are you doing that as a show? Be careful. I should be careful. We should all be careful when we have opportunity to do that publicly. Anyway, if that's why we're doing it, truly I say to you, They have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. That's what prayer should be about. And when you pray, don't keep heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, this is important because this is almost, it might seem to you that this is a contradiction in Scripture. And why I say that is because Paul tells us to, to pray continually, right, in 1 Thessalonians. Pray, pray without ceasing. True, we should always have an attitude of prayer. We should always be ready to pray. And I would all, I've always looked at that passage in, in, in a particular way as well, is that if you're living in such a way that you don't feel like you can come to the Lord in prayer because you're so far off the rails, I think there's a part of that that has to do with holy living as well. But also the idea that that is your first move. When you're wanting to thank the Lord, ask the Lord for help, praise his name, that your first move is to praise him. Not call your wife, your friend, your, but to talk to him. That should be our first. I think that's part of what that is. It also might seem like a contrast when Christ tells that parable uh, to his apostles in Luke 18 about the widow who is supposed to be pesky with this evil, uh, uh, this evil ruler in her land. And he says, That's, I'm not evil, and you should continually ask me. That's true, too. God wants, God wants us to continually come to him with, with our uh, concerns because he cares for us. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. And the, the idea that we should be anxious for nothing but through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make our requests known to the Lord. These are all true. But what God is saying is this, and I think that these are good, uh, I think it's a good kind of piece of advice that we're getting here and we can take from this. Our prayers should never just be recited habitually. Just a habit. You go through the same thing. Uh, you, do you do that in personal conversation with the people you love? It's like, boy, you're like a robot. You say the same thing every time. That's not how it should be. It shouldn't be overtly repetitious. That doesn't mean you can't keep coming to him with the same prayer. We've all done that, and he doesn't mind. But if you're just praying for the same thing thoughtlessly, that's not what we're called to do. It shouldn't be thoughtless and empty, robotic, formula-driven, as if it's all written out every time. I don't think we should be praying like that. And this idea of uttered just to impress other people. Be careful about that. And then just kind of wrap this all up. I don't have a lot of time for this, but... Proverbs ten nineteen says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Sometimes it exposes you for what you are. You know, you protest too much, the idea. But whoever strains his lips is prudent. I think that's kind of a connection to the, to the, uh, the second part of this verse. For dreams come with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. It's almost a separate idea. And I think Solomon drives that home here. Sometimes we talk too much, and it tends to expose what we're really about. All right, let's move on. Vow with reverence. So this idea with vowing and the concept of vowing with reverence. I'm going to cover these passages pretty quickly. When you vow a vow to God, a promise, almost like a covenant, but not quite the same thing, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should not vow vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, And don't say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy your work of your hands? Now, I thought about, and initially I did, taking us to James and spending a lot of time there with the power of our tongue and what we can say and do. And that is one angle we could take. Do your own Bible study on that this week. I'll give you a little assignment, as Pastor did last week. Study James and the power and the danger of the tongue. Separate argument here. But I think, and there was another angle I thought about going to, which was, Jephthah, the judge from Judges chapter 11, who made this rash vow. He said, you know, he asked the Lord for help against the Ammonites. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll offer as a sacrifice. And the first thing that comes out of my house. I don't know what he was thinking. 
It was a bad idea, and if you recall, his daughter came out. Be careful about that. I thought about going that direction. That's Judges 11. You could study that too. But I think that this has a, a deeper meaning to this that maybe is more practical for us today. Um, by the way, this is a repetition of what's seen in Deuteronomy chapter 31. It's almost the same exact sentiment. So this is a command Solomon knew. Certainly his father had told him. David had instructed him in the law. Deuteronomy is a repeat of the law. So we see the same sentiment in Deuteronomy chapter 23. It's certainly connected to that. And um, today we're going to be in Psalm chapter 50. Um, we're not going to go there because I'm going to go there later. But Psalm chapter 50, you're going to see this connection. And I threw this in here not for us to go there now because we're all going to read it together in the service here. But uh, the idea of, uh, of, of this idea of Psalm chapter 50, we'll get to that later. Anyway, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I'd like to take us to. Very practical for us. So go to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Acts 5, 1 through 11. Go there with me. You know this story. It's very familiar to you, certainly. By the way, that was a typo. I'm in Acts na- chapter 95, not 50. That was just a mistake. Acts chapter 95. Go to Acts, or excuse me, Psalm chapter 95 in the second service. Sorry about that. I'm getting my words mixed up. It happens when you have this many words that they get mixed up sometimes. Acts chapter 5, though, that I know we're doing. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. You know this account very well about what you say and why you say it. Now, this is coming off of a good example of somebody who is giving of themselves and giving of their own goods for the, for the good of the church and the good of God's glory. And we see this good example in Barnabas, and it's the end of chapter 4. I'm guessing that, and I've, we've kind of covered this a while, a while back, and you've heard me say this before about this. I'm guessing Ananias and Sapphira saw how people were patting Barnabas on the back. Say, that is pretty cool of you to do that. That's really giving, and there's nothing wrong with encouraging a believer when they're doing the right thing. My guess is they saw that. The Bible doesn't tell us they did, but it does lead us right into that. So he brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles, and he gave of himself, and he is praised in here for doing that. So I have a feeling they saw that and liked it. Chapter 5, verse 1, but a man named Ananias says, but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. They were both in on it. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Before I read this next section, the assumption in the text is that they let everybody know they were giving all. Nobody told them they had to give all. Nobody ever told Barnabas he had to do that. It's never instructed in Scripture that You have to sell everything you have and give it to the church. It never says that specifically, generally, to all Christians. It doesn't say that. But the assumption is here that they made it known that that's what they were doing. And when you're doing that, they may have just frivolously thought of this. They don't realize that what Peter's about to tell them is that you weren't just lying to men. You're lying to God. So let's read this next section. But Peter said, and the Holy Spirit must have just informed him of this. We aren't given that information, but clearly that's what's going on. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Yeah, he is lying to the congregation, but he's lying to God. This is an equal part of the Trinity here. He is lying to God himself. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land, and here's how we know he was not commanded to give all. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Nobody told you you had to do this. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. He doubles down on this. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He killed him for it. And a great fear came on all who heard of it. The young men who were wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now we know the same thing happened to his wife, right? She had an opportunity, but for the sake of time, let's skip down. She had an opportunity to come clean. She didn't. Notice what it says at the end of of this passage, verse 11. Great fear came upon all the whole church, upon all who heard of these things. That's the right, exactly the right reaction. You should have a fear of this. Paul speaks of this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when people approach uh, the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. People have gotten ill and have died because of it. So if you think, oh, God wouldn't discipline me in that way, oh, yes, he would. Oh, yes, he could. And he just might. And it may be anything in between death and having a flat tire. I don't know. But yes, God disciplines those he loves. And he keeps you in line. And you should have great fear of him as well. So be careful what you promise and why you promise it. Jesus talks about this as well. Matthew chapter 5, he says a little earlier than the Matthew 6 passage, he says this. Again, you've heard it that it was said to those of old, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform the Lord what you have sworn. I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God or by the earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more this, notice what he says, anything more than this comes from evil. Yes is yes, no is no. The the idea here that James will then jump into is this idea. Don't swear by either heaven or by earth. He's just quoting Christ here. James, the half-brother of Christ. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your character, your conduct, your who you are should be so separate and full of integrity that when you say yes, it's yes, and when you say no, it's no. If you have to swear, that probably means that you can't be trusted. No, I swear this time. No, I'm, I, trust me this time. God wants us to conduct ourselves in such a way that we live in fear of him, that we live in a way that is separate and different, that people can notice, and, and your reputation is such that if you say it, that's how it is. That, that's, you can be trusted. So the idea of making a vow, maybe you shouldn't. The idea that maybe you should just do what God says, and that should be your reputation. And then let's finish here with the fear of the Lord. A very short verse, chapter 5, verse 7. Here's what it says, and I'll bring it up on the screen for us to see. The fear of the Lord. The idea behind this is very simple. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, emptiness, some of your Bibles might say. That if you're pursuing the things of this world and the things that that promote you, that make you happy, that make other people happy, you are fearing them, you are fearing uh, losing happiness, or you're, you're fearing losing something that you might have had, that you want. It's all kinds of things because the contrast is you should fear the Lord, not losing other things or not getting what you, not not getting the things that you want. I think that's the contrast that we're seeing here. So the idea of fearing the Lord, Oswald Chambers says this, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. You you fear what you're going to lose, what you're not going to get, what's going to happen to you, what your future will hold, when you're going to die, if you get sick. But when you fear the Lord, you don't worry about those things. And 
I think a good perspective on this is Isaiah chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 14, just to give us an idea of the idea of the fearing the Lord. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, don't call conspiracy and all this people calls conspiracy. Don't fear what they're fearing, don't, nor be in dread. Don't worry about the world and the things in it, the things that you're not going to get, the things that are, could happen, all these. Don't worry, don't worry about that. But the Lord of hosts, whom, whom you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Serve him, honor him. Worry about what he wants. Worry about what pleases him. Worry about what his word says and doing it. That's what you should care about. Notice Revelation 14, of course, the idea of God's judgment coming and the idea of what God is going to do uh, when he returns as king. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. That's your concern. Fear God and give him glory. And of course, we've looked at these passages before, but receiving, when we've, re- this is for the non-believer, when you've heard the gospel, you've received the knowledge of the truth, and you just keep pushing it off. We talked about this a few weeks ago in, in the sermon. The clock's ticking. The clock's ticking. We don't have all the time in the world. You may lose your chance. Notice, but there should be now a fearful expectation of judgment. This is the idea here. Be, be careful about this. If you've heard the gospel and you haven't responded, there's a different kind of fear here. It's a fear of judgment. The idea continues in, in Hebrews 10, 29 through 31. And I, I don't have time to read it all because the clock's ticking for me, too. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. This is a warning to the, to the non-repentant, to the non-regenerate, to the non-believer, to those who, as I mentioned before, whether they know it or not, are enemies of God. Be careful. Be careful when you hear the gospel. Be careful what you do with the gospel. But it's more than that. What God requires of us as believers is important, too. The end of Ecclesiastes, pastors reference this more than one time, and I'm on land the plane here. The end of the matter is this: all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God, believer. Fear Him and then do what He says. If you're in Christ, that's obeying the gospel. You put your faith in Christ. You repented and you believed because of what He did. But now obey His commandments. It's the whole duty of man. This is what we do. This is what God requires of us. We saw this earlier, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Fear the Lord your God. Notice the connect. It's almost exactly the same. To walk in all his ways. Do what he says. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And if you do that, you will do what he says. And to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which are commanded to you to this day, to do good. So, believer, it's not just, it's not just about salvation for the non-believer and all we fear him so that we get saved oh yes that's no doubt what happens at the beginning but now you 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 fear him as a believer and you want to obey him because you love him and you know this powerful mighty god that will judge the earth has paid your price he has made a way for you and you didn't deserve it i I go back to that quote earlier that, that we looked at the idea that that we somehow have arrogance in our salvation. There's just no way to look at it that way. I'm surprised that he even saved me. We, we live in awe of him. So let's finish with this. Since we have these promises, these incredible promises of our God, that he loves us and he saved us. In Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, rich in mercy. That's, that's for everybody in here who's in Christ. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body. Let's cleanse ourselves. This is this is understanding that we're going to live holy lives now. We don't just live in cheap grace. 
and spirit and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Not because we dread his judgment that he's going to condemn us. No, there's no condemnation because we love him. And this mighty God has saw fit to save us when we didn't deserve it. Now live like it. Live in reflection of that. That's the fear of the Lord in awe, awe mingled with love. Beautiful, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for these passages that we've looked at. We thank you for your word being true and consistent and always kind of coming back into itself and defining itself. We thank you. It makes my job easy. You you preach for me. You teach for me. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your word being true and the challenges of your word that you give us opportunity to do this this week. And we thank you that we are saved by grace through faith alone, and this is not of ourselves. We thank you that we don't hold our salvation because we'd lose it. But we also thank you that you've given us opportunity to live out this, this salvation in fear and trembling, that we work out this sanctification, that you let us take part in this to obey you, not to impress you, but to please you. And we love you, Lord, and I pray that we do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.